This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. We had some people reach out to us uh, after our last episode and asking about the dogs, which was super exciting. So I, I wanted Very to give cool. a yeah, I wanted to give a little pitch. If you ever want to reach out with um, you know ideas for topics for the show, or if you had any questions or um, feedback or anything like that, aging matters at transitionslifecare.org. You can shoot me an email, and we'd be happy to to work with you. Yeah, let me really quick plug our uh, podcast at WPTF.com. If you missed last week's episode and you want to hear uh, some very interesting information related to therapy dogs, check at, check it out online, WPTF. Click on the podcast button and find Aging Matters there. Well, let's get into our main topic at hand, and we're going to be discussing dementia. And we are very pleased to have on the program Dr. Mitch Kleonsky, he's a clinical neuropsychologist and, you know, folks can't see him because he's on with us via Zoom, but uh, very well dressed. I mean, he he really went all out this afternoon to dress to impress, to impress us. Dr. Kleonsky, thank you for joining us and thank you for uh, making Mary and I both feel very underdressed right now. <laughs> Glad to be here Jason, this is a real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to talking about dementia prevention today. Definitely. Dr. Kleonsky, maybe to start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I am a neuropsychologist, which means that I, for a living, test people's abilities to think. We measure how people pay attention, how they learn, and how they hold on to new information. So basically, short-term memory. Mm -hmm. We look at their problem-solving skills, their intelligence. We talk about their emotional state. And we use those test results to compare with what they should be able to do. And we can then compare that and make diagnostic statements to whether the person's thinking is normal or whether they're having some problems, and if so, in what areas, and even more so, what to do about that to either stabilize or improve their abilities to think. So I've been, uh, I got my PhD in clinical psychology back in the dark ages of uh, 1977. Uh, so I've been practicing for a very long time. I work in Western Massachusetts and practice in parallel with my wife, a physician, psychiatrist and neurologist, Dr. Emily Kleonsky. And every year we see somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand patients uh, and uh, you know, treat them for the problems that they're having. And uh, this is basically my my work, but also a passion, because I'm also the, the son of a woman who had dementia. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this from both sides. And it's really important to me that we prevent as many people from developing dementia as is absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. And that's why we want to get the word out that there are things you can do that will make a difference down the road. That's very interesting, and, and coming from the caregiver perspective as well. So your book, De Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, it, did being a caregiver 
play into what made you want to write this book? Or is it more of your research? Or tell us a little bit about um, the why behind the book. It's sort of a combination of everything. Uh, you know, we, over the years, have been developing better and better ways of treating people who already had dementia. By the time people come in to see someone like me, they're oftentimes at at least mild stages of dementia or later. Uh, that's because people are reticent to talk to their doctors about this. They deny things are going on, and their children are afraid of hurting their feelings. So, unfortunately, diagnosis gets delayed and therefore treatment gets delayed. But we are finding that by bringing in Emily's work with medical conditions and really improving a lot of the underlying contributors to people's thinking abilities, their diabetes, their blood pressure, their, some of their abnormalities in their blood tests, uh, and by also helping them to change some of their behavior and then using some of the already existing medications we have for dementia, that we could stabilize people's cognition for five years or more so that rather than something that was progressing, we were basically able to measure it at a stable level for five years and actually improve some people's abilities. Uh, we presented a poster involving a study we did on 700 patients uh, at the American Academy of Neurology back in 2014, where we showed that we could, by changing a lot of these factors, actually improve people's cognition and to keep it better over a period of two years. So uh, we then started working at an earlier level, saying, well, if this works here, what if we apply these same things to people who did not yet have a diagnosed dementia, mm -hmm. but rather had what we call mild cognitive impairment and got even better results? And then said, well, why don't we work earlier? And then we realized, you know, we can only see about 1,000 people a year. And there are so many people who could benefit. We got to write a book. Mm -hmm. Actually, that was my idea. Mm -hmm. Emily said, no, 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 we're too busy. And I said, no, 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 we're not. <laughs> this is important. We have to do this. So this was right. We went to a conference, actually, a Harvard conference on uh, writing for uh, medical professionals. And while we were there, we met the acquisitions editor from Johns Hopkins Press and convinced him that this was a book that the press really should be publishing. And they gave us a contract to do this. And we had to go through all kinds of committees to make sure all of we, what we were doing was scientifically sound. And then it was a matter of just you know getting the word out there. And so, uh, you know, pandemic happened in the meantime. That slowed us down about a year because it seems like the only uh, things that were really being printed during that time were political treatises. Uh, so we finally got it published in April of 2023. So that's our goal is to get the word out, to really say, you know, one in two cases of dementia can be prevented. Mm. Our goal is to make you a one rather than a two. That's awesome. You you describe me, well, first of all, shout out to my alma mater, Johns Hopkins. Um, it's great that they have partnered with you on this book. Um, you describe me perfectly in your book. And when I was reading it, I immediately identified myself as the dementia warrior, not to be confused <laughs> with the dementia warrior. Uh, this is precisely why I dove into your book as soon as I received it. My grandmother um, had Alzheimer's and and really living with that for seven years and watching her as and, and helping my aunts and caring for her um, it is horrible disease. So who is this book meant for? Is it meant for people like me, the warrior, 
Um, or is it more for people who have already been diagnosed or a little bit of everybody in between? It's probably most aimed for the worriers. We know <laughs> that 80% of the people over the age of 50 say they are either somewhat or very worried about developing dementia. There's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, but it's funny, the people who actually come to our talks more often are people who are already experiencing some problems and mm -hmm. trying to figure out how do I slow it down. I, I, I would love for people as early as their 20s to start looking at this because mm -hmm. some of the factors that are later going to play out begin as early as 20s, 30s, and then they really reach fruition in midlife mm -hmm. when a lot of the things like uh, you know diabetes and hypertension really begin to rear their ugly heads where people you know are noticing that they're not breathing well while they're sleeping when we start talking about exercise. So a lot of these factors can start a lot earlier, but people pretty much start coming to the talks when they're in their 60s and 70s and saying, okay, what do I do now? And that's fine. There's still things that can be done, but uh, you, know, you can't start too early. Mm -hmm. We are speaking with Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He's a clinical neuropsychologist, and we're going to continue our conversation centered on dementia prevention right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. It's a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you. It's a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, and our guest on the line is Dr. Mitch Kleonsky, and he is a clinical neuropsychologist, and we're talking all things dementia prevention, which, as we just heard from Dr. Kleonsky, this is a big worry that uh, is, seems pretty much universal mm -hmm. uh, for just about all people. And Mary, let's, let's pick up with, I guess, some of the basics. Yeah, I think let's start there. Dementia is one of those words that can be very confusing. Dr. Kleonsky, is it Alzheimer's? Is it dementia? Are they the same? Are they different? Help us define a little bit before we dive in. Great question. Uh, dementia is a neurological condition. It's a progressive neurological condition in which people's brains change. They typically get somewhat smaller in volume, so there's less brain matter. And also the connectivity of different areas of the brain deteriorates because of disruption in some of the communication pathways. It's a overall area or overall category in which there are subcategories, uh, the most famous of which is Alzheimer's disease. Interestingly enough, Alzheimer's disease was not originally a label for senile dementia for people who were over the age of 65. When Alzheimer's did his work back in the early 1900s in Europe, he was studying people under the age of 65. <clears throat> and that's because, that's because back then, 
people didn't live as long. We thought almost everybody over the age of 65 had thinking problems. Later on, this name, his name, became applied to a variety of different types of dementia. But there are a lot of categories involving vascular or circulatory problems, involving changes in the frontal areas of the brain, something called frontotemporal dementia, most recently known from Bruce Willis. Mm. There's dementias due to Parkinson's disease. About a quarter of the people with Parkinson's will develop losses of memory and thinking abilities. Mm -hmm. And there are changes due to things like excessive alcohol use, head injuries, infectious processes, uh, viruses of various types. So there's a whole lot of categories. We, we use the analogy of if you say, is it a Ford or is it a car? <laughs> well, it's actually both. So <clears throat> Alzheimer's is like the Ford. It's a type of dementia, but so are the others. And in fact, most dementias are a combination of vascular mm -hmm. dementia and Alzheimer's disease. That, I love that analogy. That really helps kind of hit it home. You know, I I'm sometimes joke like if I'm I'm you know stuck in my thought and I'm like really confused about something or totally forget something altogether. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's going on. Is this me aging? How do you tell the differences between normal cognitive aging and dementia? And at what rate are we actually losing brain volume as you age? And is that something that plays into this? Well, unfortunately, most of us actually are losing brain volume as we age, and it's that part of it is sort of an inevitable thing. There are, is a 2 to 5% group of people who we call super-agers who, in their mid-80s, continue to think like they did in their mid-50s. I recently wrote a Psychology Today blog uh, post on super-agers, and there's a column by a guy named Richard Seema in the Washington Post a couple months ago uh, that uh, talked about that as, as well as, as dementia prevention. So this is an area that I, th I think is becoming interesting because of uh, the, the idea of uh, our, our political uh, leaders too old to do their jobs. And are they, in fact, are some of them maybe superagers? And they aren't too old. They're just thinking like they're 50 when they're 80. But getting back to the point, we all lose a half step to some degree as we get older. The question is, when does it become something that's pathological? Mm -hmm. It's almost like saying, when does daylight become dusk and when does dusk become night? That's one of those philosophical things that people debated for centuries. And it makes it very hard to use symptoms or experiences as your guideposts. We all forget some things. We go into a room and say, okay, why are we here? We put down our cup of coffee and then spend five minutes trying to figure out where we left it. We go out into a strange parking lot and are glad we can beep our car on our fob because otherwise we could spend 20 minutes looking like we're really confused in the parking lot. So these can be entirely normal phenomena. They can also be signs that you're losing it. And that's why when we're looking at these things, it's important not to go by symptoms, but rather by actual objective tests. You know, it's, it's funny that doctors don't do enough testing of people when they come in for regular physicals. It's sort of be like, if you went into your doctor's office, would your doctor say to you, so how's your blood pressure? Mm -hmm. 
Of course not. They <laughs> slap a cuff on your arm and measure it. If they want to know, well, how's your weight? They say, get up on the scale. They wouldn't take your word for, well, I think my weight's okay, doc, because it's a measurable thing. So is cognition. So we can measure objectively someone's ability to think. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we're not incentivizing doctors to do this as part of their regular physicals. So consequently, we miss these early stages. And it's even more so if we have an older doctor, because the doctor uses themselves as the comparison. See, well, I do that too. That can't be all that bad. Let's talk a little bit about the reality of dementia. Your book shared a, a wonderful statistic that I found really shocking. By 2050, approximately 5% of the people in the world will be 85 years or older, which is a tripling of elders with dementia is predicted. And we're living longer. Dementia is increasing. You share that this underestimates the actual prevalence of dementia. Talk to us about why. And I don't want to give away the whole book, but a, <laughs> okay. a, a little bit of why you think that. Well, it's because we don't keep good records. Uh, as I was just mentioning, doctors don't test for this routinely. So if you're only picking up the people who are so obviously demented, I mean, yesterday I had a woman come in to see me whose doctor was suspicious that there was something wrong. And I said to her, so, you know, tell me your name, tell me your date of birth, where do you live? And she couldn't come up with her address. I said, well, how long have you lived there? She's uh, 20 years. That was the beginning of our interview. It went downhill from there. This is a woman who already had moderate dementia, but her doctor was just suspicious. I probably should have seen this woman three years ago. So, number one, we're underdiagnosing for that. 40% of doctors say they aren't comfortable giving a dementia diagnosis. The Medicare diagnostic uh, codes, oftentimes people don't use those. They'll put in something like a memory problem as their diagnostic code that gets reported rather than vascular dementia, Alzheimer's disease, any of those kinds of things. And we also, in many cases, don't think beyond Alzheimer's. So, for example, the statistics of the United States are uh, 6.7, I think it is, million people currently with Alzheimer's. Well, that's fine, but there are probably an equal number mm -hmm. who have other types of dementias. And then you add on the people who have mild cognitive impairment, who are, in many cases, right on the cusp, the brink of developing dementia. So it's a much bigger problem than that. And as we get older, the statistics are very clear that our risk goes up. It's just, it's a wearing out of a lot of aspects of our brain that over time manifest themselves, but weren't really a big problem when we were 50 or 60, but become so when we're 70 and 80. Mm -hmm. Something that we're really going to need to have on the radar. We're speaking with Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He's a clinical neuropsychologist, and we're talking about dementia prevention. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Kleonsky right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. 
This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, find some resources available online for you. Head on over to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong and Mary Lucas here with our guest, Dr. Mitch Kleonsky, a clinical neuropsychologist, and we're talking all about dementia prevention. Yes, I love how your book, Dr. Kleonsky, culminates your clinical experience and builds it into a guidance for readers. How much research went into building this book and the framework and the models that we'll touch on here in a bit? How much research went into building, building out this book? We spent a tremendous amount of time, uh, my wife Emily and I both, looking at the research from a clinical perspective because we've used this for years to give good care to our patients. And we discovered in doing so that we had to look really widely because there are no dementiologists. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. There's cardiologists, there's neurologists, there's all these ologists. There's no dementiologists. So dementia really is something that is a part of neurology. It's a part of psychiatry. As a neuropsychologist, we certainly get into it, but it also involves sleep medicine, Mm -hmm. cardiology, endocrinology, exercise physiology. Uh, There's uh, audiology. Hearing loss is an important factor. Uh, There's all these different areas, but we each read our own literature, mm-hmm. and not necessarily the literature of other fields. So you know what an expert is. An expert is somebody who gets better and better at looking at less and less, a more narrow field, until eventually they know everything about nothing. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's an old joke, but it's actually sort of true, in that very often people get so focused on very specific and minute areas, they become very good at it, but they don't see the bigger picture. Mm. So what we strove to do with our practice, and then putting this out in the book, was to pull together these various areas of medicine and science, things that people might not ordinarily know about, and facts and information, tie them together into a model, and then translate that model into a way that everyday people can understand. Because if the reader or the listener doesn't get it, then they're not likely to do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And we're very much into doing things that translate into better health, better outcomes, better care. Mm -hmm. So that was the challenge. Mm -hmm. How do you take this research that you really have to have advanced education to truly understand it. How do we take that and make it understandable without dumbing it down? Mm -hmm. So we always love to hear feedback from people where they say, wow, I was so surprised in reading the book because I didn't think I'd understand it, but it really was very interesting and I understood it. And, And the examples and the stories 
made it clear what was going on. And that, that always, man, I just smile when that happens because it tells me that here's somebody who's going to actually use this. So that was the whole idea of informing this. Plus, we had some very good shoulders to stand on because during this time, there was a large commission in Great Britain called the Lancet Commission. Mm-hmm. About 25, 30 different scientists, blue ribbon panel, pulled together all of what they thought was the existing literature on dementia prevention. And they published a very important paper in 2017. And they laid out 12 different factors that were involved in dementia prevention. And what they determined was they could reduce the likelihood of the cases of dementia by 40% if people simply did these things. Mm. Well, that was shocking and surprising and very optimistic. And But they came back three years later, and the Lancet Commission again came out with a paper on the same topic, and now they added a few things and upped their percentage by a few points. Mm. So in 2020, they said about 42 43% could be prevented. Not to be outdone, two years later in 2022, the United States in the U.S. Health and Retirement Survey, Mm -hmm. a group of scientists used the same factors and now got a number of 60%. Mm. So we feel very comfortable in taking the 40 as the low point, the 60 as the high point, and saying very reliably, one out of every two cases of dementia can be prevented. Wow. So I don't want to get into everything, but what is the premises for the model? What are some of the things, risk factors that people can work on controlling now? Well, there a lot of them in midlife mm-hmm. have to do with habits mm. because habits will determine people's health. So while there are people who, for example, have type 1 diabetes, so it's diagnosed in childhood in many cases. They become insulin dependent. It doesn't matter really what their weight or height is or how what they exercise. That'll help, but it won't fix the diabetes. There's a problem with their pancreas. Mm-hmm. Most people have type 2 diabetes, and type 2 diabetes is usually a disease in midlife or later, comes on typically from people who are overweight, who don't exercise, who also don't have very good dietary habits. And that is something that causes a wear and tear on their vascular system. And consequently, they're at much higher risk for developing memory problems as they get older. The cool thing is, this is a condition that's not only treatable by medication, but is treatable to a great degree by habits. So people with type 2 diabetes who have weight that is consistent with their body size. And I'm not into shaming people. I'm interested (laughs) in saying, what is your body designed to carry? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Not how do I look, but what was I built for? And if you could get your body weight in line with what it should be carrying, if you're exercising, and I promote people exercising every day, Mm-hmm. If you are not abusing alcohol, we can talk about that if you want, but that's evolved. If you're not smoking cigarettes, if you're controlling your blood pressure, if you are uh, looking at whether or not you have sleep disordered breathing, something called sleep apnea, you're going to go a long way toward preventing your brain from wearing down as you get older. 
And so a lot of that has to do with how you live your life, mm-hmm. not just what's happened to you as a result of you know falling on your head when you were five years old and having a concussion, or whether or not you were born with a particular genetic component. Mm. So is it ever too late or too young to start prevention? No, never. Uh, I see people who are in their 70s and 80s. I see some people even in their 90s. You know, when you're in the mid-90s, we're probably not going to change a lot of behavior. Uh, But in your 80s, yeah. In your 70s, definitely. Uh, There are a lot of things. I believe in the the golf model. You play it where it lays. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you're on the fairway, which is great, but sometimes you're in the woods. And you have to figure your way back out, and that's where having professionals who can help you with this can be a real advantage. Uh, but you can still figure out some of that. I mean, one of the things we have in the book that you can also get for free on our website is a uh, is a questionnaire, is a checklist that'll help give you an idea of where your strengths and your weaknesses are. As for too young, uh, you know, uh, Emily, my wife's uh, idea for the next book is dementia proof your baby. She wants to start <laughs> prenatally because there are things even that early that can make a difference in the trajectory of brain function in childhood, adulthood, and eventually in the latter stages of life. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's never too late. It's never too early. We're speaking with Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He's a clinical neuropsychologist and author of the book Dementia Prevention, the website uh, that he was referencing. You can go to braindoc.com to learn a little bit more about the book. And uh, before we get to break, Dr. Kleonsky, this is a, a nice website that you have here. <laughs> of course, a nice picture of you and your wife, Emily, with all your designations, you know, PhD, ABPPCN, MD, and I, I see two <laughs> other featured stars on this website that I'm very excited to talk about. I see Friday LD and Rusko SD. Can you talk about their designations real quick? <laughs> That was our web direct, our website developer's uh, idea for the degrees. Uh, so Friday, who unfortunately uh, uh, passed on the same day our book was oh, published, no. April 4th, which is, but wait, talk about the highs and lows of something occurring to you on the very same day. Mm-hmm. He was, he's a labradoodle and part person. Uh, he was better than many people I've met during my life <laughs> and was uh, he, he basically came to the office every day. Aww. He would uh, walk through the waiting room. He was always able to pick out somebody who was having a tough day and he'd go and patiently sit by their side and they would pet him and they'd smile and it was the biggest difference in their life. They would ask about him. They couldn't remember my name. They remember Friday's <laughs> name when they come back to see us. Oh, that's great. The the younger one, who's all poodle, his name is Rusko. He's actually named after our book editor. Uh, we, <laughs> we couldn't figure out what to name this dog. And he's now a year old. And uh, the story is that uh, we went back and forth and didn't like any of the names. And I said, oh, we ought to name him after uh, Joe Rusko, our editor. He's uh, very uh, good looking. He's very bright. He's got a lot of energy. And he rarely <laughs> listens to what we want him to do. 
<laughs> and so it's stuck. <laughs> and if Joe is at all listening to this, I apologize for airing this out in public. But yeah, that's that's how he got his name. And so we're constantly correcting people because I think it's Roscoe or Rascal or uh, a bunch of other things. But uh, he's now coming to the office and uh, coming into his own. Aww. So uh, it's uh, a, you know, a, a, since you ask, it's uh, as, as you can tell, uh, you know, dogs are oftentimes more than just dogs. They, they certainly are. And again, if you want to check out a picture of Friday and Rusco, you can go to braindoc.com. Of course, you can find information about the book as well. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Jason Kong here with... Mary Lucas, our guest on the line, who's been so gracious with his time, is Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. He's a clinical neuropsychologist and author of the book Dementia Prevention, and that's what we're talking about, dementia prevention. And we've got our last segment here with Dr. Kleonsky, Mary, so let's get to it. Yeah, Dr. Kleonsky, your book does a great job showing the synergy between many of these factors that we've been talking about. And in in the book, I remember very uh, vividly, there's this one diagram you have. Well, it kind of builds on each other. And then the last one is just this huge tangled web of how everything impacts everything else. Can you share a real life example? You know, we've been talking about diabetes and some of these things that in your book, so that people get a clear picture of the impact of how everything works together like this. Love to. So let, let, let's talk about the importance of oxygen getting to your brain. Mm. So one of the things that we've just in the past week or so found out is a new statistic that's 50% of people over the age of 58, half of the people suffer from something called obstructive sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. OSA. This is a condition where while you're sleeping, you stop breathing or your oxygen drops by three or four percent five or more times per hour. Hmm. So every hour you're asleep, you stop breathing or don't get enough oxygen five to 10 to 20. Sometimes I've seen people as high as 100 times an hour. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. Well, it turns out that when this happens, you then don't get enough oxygen pulled out of the air because not enough is getting to your lungs. So you don't have enough oxygen molecules attaching to the red blood cells getting up to your brain. Well, from a brain perspective, it means that ATP, which is an energy molecule, isn't made effectively, so you're tired a lot. It means that the process by which toxins are flushed out of your brain every night while you're asleep doesn't work very well. So you don't think very well, you're inattentive, and you don't remember. It increases your odds of developing dementia. Well, where does the sleep apnea come from? 
Well, sometimes it's because we're born with a smaller than usual airway. Sometimes it's because our tonsils crowd out our airway. But a lot of times it's simply that we get older, and if we're overweight particularly, that can interfere with our airways staying open. So you got people who oftentimes are already experiencing some degree of vascular changes, some circulatory problems because of obesity. And when you're overweight, oftentimes you don't feel like exercising, which makes it even worse. Well, you're also very likely then to have sleep apnea. So you're not sleeping well. You're not breathing well while you're sleeping. You're too tired to exercise. You are getting up in the middle of the night three or four times to go to the bathroom. Turns out that's actually related to sleep apnea as well. So you go to your doctor and say, Doc, I can't sleep. I'm getting up too many times. The doctor says, oh, here, take this medication. This will dry you up. So they give you something that is high in a quality called anticholinergic effects. Mm -hmm. These are the medications that tighten your bladder. Well, they also suppress your thinking abilities. So now you're not sleeping, you're not breathing, you're not exercising, and you're taking a medication which is getting in the way of your thinking. So you can see how in this model, these factors, and so, so now you're also depressed. So you're staying home more, you're not going out, you're not interacting with other people. So that's why this model shows all of these connections to the point where you say, whoa, how do I deal with this kind of what we call it a Gordian knot. It's like mm -hmm. a ball of, of rubber bands. Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is you start someplace because if you then treat the sleep apnea, if you dig it diagnosed and you treat it, so now you have more oxygen getting to your brain, more energy during the day, it actually changes to the balance of two chemicals in your brain called leptin and ghrelin, these are not Hansel and Gretel characters. These are leptin and ghrelin, two hormones that control when your body burns calories. So now it's easier to lose weight. So now you have more energy. You're also now sleeping better through the night because you're treating your sleep apnea. You go off of the bladder medications. So now you're unraveling the same knot that had built by all these problems. So that's why we explain this in terms of a model that becomes complex, but also why it is that there's no single intervention. We tell people that dementia prevention is a thing. It's just not one thing. Mm -hmm. It's a whole bunch of things. By figuring out what it is for you, that empowers you to then change, to do something about it. That's a great segue into my next question. You mentioned earlier the checklist that you have as at the end of the book and also on your website. Talk to us about how you produce this list and how listeners can use this and use the findings to help address some of these things. Well, we took each of the factors that appear in our model and also added one or two. There's uh, some factors having to do with preventive care. Uh, we just recently learned uh, in the last year, uh, actually after the content of the book was in, that periodontal disease is also associated with greater risk of cognitive decline. So as we get older, people don't take care of their teeth and their gums. We'll get bacteria developing that can actually cause changes in their brain. So you got to floss and brush as well as doing all the other things that are important for your health. But we, in setting up this checklist, wanted to go through each of the factors and give people a chance to either find out what their numbers are. So there's some lab tests, some of which 
are known for most people, like their blood pressure, some of which are not known by most people, like their level of homocysteine or methylmalonic acid. These are two things that are involved with vitamin B12 and B9 metabolism. So they need to go and get this information. They might have to ask their doctor to get some blood tests drawn. But they can go through and figure out by answering the questions whether they're on target, whether they're close to their target levels, because we give those, or whether they're off target and really need to concentrate on changing those areas. So it's a way of first figuring out where you are and then perhaps in the future going back and retaking the checklist and figuring out where you've come closer to your goals. That's great. How can people find more about the checklist, your book, learn more about you and your wife, your dogs? Tell us how we can find you and purchase your book as well. <laughs> well, you might stumble into us on the street, but uh, uh, that doesn't happen because I'll talk with anybody about dementia prevention. It's, uh, it's a mission at this point. Uh, so BrainDoc is the name of our website, B-R-A-I-N-D-O-C. So it's got links to uh, different articles about us and other podcasts, uh, uh, not as good as this one, but others. Obviously. And it's got, uh, you know, you can get the book through uh, you know, Barnes & Noble, through Amazon. You can get it through Johns Hopkins Press. It's on Kindle and iPad. It's also an audio book. Uh, so it's basically, if you will Google my last name, Kleonsky, with a C, uh, C-L-I-O-N-S-K-Y. Uh, you will also get there. So there's a lot of different ways. It's uh, it's in a bunch of libraries as well. So mm -hmm. I feel really good about that because while we want to sell books, it's more important that we get people to read the book mm -hmm. or listen to the book. And if you can get it for free, I'm you know that that's great. Uh, this is this is not where we're making our living. This is simply something we wanted to do. Excellent. The website is braindocdoc.com. The book is Dementia Prevention, and he is Dr. Mitch Kleonsky. Dr. Kleonsky, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I thought this was highly educational and easy to understand for a concept and a disease that is uh, mm -hmm. certainly not that. So thank you very much for taking your time and explaining this to everyone listening. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, we are out of time for today. Don't forget, you can go to WPTF.com, click on Podcasts, find the Aging Matters section, and there you can listen or share this episode as well as all of our other past episodes as well. WPTF.com, just click on Podcasts. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, and you have been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.